as we're all fully aware, the story of the Bible, it begins with God just walking out onto the stage, as it were, and introducing himself. In the beginning, God. Simple, right? Straightforward. (laughs) No long, drawn-out philosophical argument as to why he exists. He he just exists. In fact, um, the Apostle John, in his introduction to his gospel, builds on this foregone conclusion that God exists. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, w- was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, uh, John reminds us that God is, God was, God always will be. But today in our post-Christian world, we want to see the proof, don't we? We don't accept people just telling us that uh, God exists. No, what we do is we want to see the evidence. I mean, if God did all these miracles in the Bible, like parting the Red Sea, like walking on water, like uh, rising from the dead, I mean, why doesn't he show himself like that to me today? (laughs) Oliver Sacks, an author and uh, neurologist, writing in New Yorker magazine a number of years ago, told about wanting to prove to himself that God existed. So he decided to do an experiment to resolve the matter decisively. He writes this, I planted two rows of radishes side by side in the vegetable garden and asked God to bless one or curse one whichever he wished, so that I might see a clear difference between them. The two rows of radishes came up identical, and this was proof for me that no God existed. (laughs) So listen, if we ask God to bless one row of radishes and not the other, and then (laughs) we, we see no difference in them, Is that really proof that God doesn't exist? (laughs) Or is that just proof that that radishes grew? (laughs) I mean, how could we really know if God exists? In a 2022 survey, um, just done last year, conducted by NORC, the research arm of the University of Chicago, 50% of Americans said they're unsure God is real. 50%. And then just under 50% say they're positive that God exists. But what happens is, if you take, uh, compare that survey that was done just last year with one that was done over 10 years ago by that same group, um, evidently, there's a discovery that more and more people are moving towards the uncertainty That God exists. As Christ followers, um, as we have discovered, as we have been through this sermon series, we are living as exiles in a foreign land, strangers in this post Christian world. And we find ourselves being challenged with that question. Sometimes 
most of the time, maybe from outside of the church, but even sometimes within the church with that question, how do I know that God really exists? I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1 this morning. In your Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 1. Hopefully, um, you brought your Bibles. Maybe you use the Bible app on your phone or you take one of those pew Bibles out. Romans chapter 1 this morning. I invite you to turn there as we begin. Here in Romans chapter 1, we're told that God has made himself visible to us. In fact, look with me. Romans 1 verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain or visible to them because God has shown it to them. Paul here, he, he makes a, a, a similar argument to other times um, when he was out preaching the gospel, um, uh, when he was preaching to the Gentiles in, in Lystra or when he was preaching to the Gentiles there in Athens, he makes the same argument. David of the Old Testament makes that same argument in Psalm 19. He reminds us that God has made himself known when he says the heavens declare what? The glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, the problem I, I want to suggest to you this morning is that we miss the clues. And I'm using that word clue intentionally. Why? Because I don't think there are any airtight proofs for the existence of God. But the question, see, it, it, it really isn't, can you prove God exists beyond a shadow of a doubt? But rather, does believing in God and trusting him does that make more sense than basing your life on the alternative that there is no God out there? So I want to give you um, three clues this morning that point to God, to the existence of God. And the first clue is simply this, creation. Creation. In fact, look at the very next verse that Paul gives us here. Romans 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, we see the invisible God by looking around at the visible world. I mean, that's how we see the invisible, isn't it? By looking at, at, the, at, at the visible. I mean, listen, if I want to see the wind blowing, what do I do? I, I go out in my backyard and I look up at the big tree in my backyard and I see if the leaves are moving back and forth and back and forth. Three things that we can see in our visible world that point to our invisible God's existence. One of them is the fact that the universe exists. Why? Why does the universe exist? How? How did the universe get started? Um, why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> now, our, our world wants to answer that question with um, the Big Bang Theory. 
Stephen Hawking wrote, almost everyone now believes that the, uh, that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, just for the sake of argument <laughs> this morning, let's say that the Big Bang theory is right. Here's the problem. What produced the Big Bang? I mean, everything has a beginning cause. Nothing just magically uh, pops into existence, into being, right? I mean, your computer, that too had a cause. Um, uh, my grass in my yard, that, that, that had a cause. Um, uh, your cell phone had a cause. Um, every object or event, everything that has a beginning has a first cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, something caused the universe. Now think about the alternative. That something can come from nothing. I mean, nothing would mean complete, blank, emptiness. Nothing. Try to imagine that for a moment. I mean, no space, no time, no matter, no energy, nothing. Then with no explanation, no cause, the universe what? Just pops into being? <laughs> that doesn't work. You cannot get something from nothing. So listen, if you want to be an atheist, the existence of the Big Bang might be thought of as an inconvenient truth. <laughs> For in that case, the, the physical universe must have produced, uh, been produced by something not physical. The existence of the universe itself points to the existence of, of something beyond the universe, something uh, that does not depend on anything else. Um, something of immense power, doesn't it? Listen, if we are looking for a clue that God exists, a clue that there's something besides and beyond our natural world, our universe is a good first clue. Another pointer towards God that we find in creation is the fine-tuning of our universe. What I mean by that <clears throat> is that our, our, our universe seems to be fine-tuned um, to be the kind of place that can support life. I mean, it wouldn't have to be, but it is. I mean, there are a striking number of conditions or contingencies in biology and, and, and physics that would have to be just right for life to arise from the universe. I mean, it, it turns out that conditions are just right. Francis Collins, in his book, The Language of God, writes this. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. The gravitational constants, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any of those constants were off by even one part in a million, 
or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. I mean, think about it just for a moment. I mean, water has a unique property, doesn't it? As water gets colder, it contracts until it freezes. And then it reverses course <laughs> and expands. If it did not have this very strange property, oceans and lakes would freeze from the bottom up. They would freeze solid, which would make aquatic life and therefore life in general impossible. I mean, think about it. Uh, the precise orbit of the, of, of the earth and its distance from the, from the sun, the existence of the, of the moon that keeps the earth tilted on its axis at 23.5 degrees makes a climate that can sustain life. In fact, physicists say that we live in the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> not too hot, not too cold, just right. It seems extremely unlikely that this would just happen, that our universe would be so finely tuned by chance, doesn't it? Alvin Plantinga uh, illustrates it this way. He says, imagine a man in the Old West, remember those old Western you know, movies, in the Old West, dealing himself 20 straight hands of four aces, in the same game of poker. As those at the table are reaching for their six shooters, <laughs> the poker player protests, listen, I, I know it looks very suspicious, but listen, I, I mean, technically it's possible. <laughs> now my guess is that his argument would not have had much effect on those other poker players, do you? Though they might uh, not have been able to prove beyond a shadow of a, of a doubt that he had cheated, it would be unreasonable to conclude that he hadn't cheated. <laughs> Although this finely tuned universe with all of its organic life could have just happened by chance without a creator, it's unreasonable to believe in such a remote chance to be true. In fact, Stephen Hawking actually agrees. He says the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like a Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Let me give you a third pointer to God's existence from creation. It's the regularity of nature. See, all scientific Inductive reasoning is based on the assumption of this regularity or what we typically call the laws of nature. For example, water will boil tomorrow under the same conditions that it boils today. Without inductive reasoning, we couldn't learn from experience. Uh, we couldn't use language. We couldn't rely on memory. Modern science would be lost if we um, couldn't rely on the regularity of nature. Where did all that come from? Why are things the way they are? 
Now, most people aren't troubled really uh, by this. I mean, their best response to that, that question is, well, I don't know. Nobody knows. We don't know. <laughs> but see, when you sit down and you think about it, it's another pointer to the fact that we live in an orderly universe created and sustained by an all-powerful, personal, orderly God. Now, there are other pointers. One of them, uh, Pastor Jay mentioned just, uh, just a bit earlier, um, the reality of beauty and love. That's another pointer to God's existence. Our hunger for meaning and significance. It's another pointer to, to God's existence. Admittedly, None of the three pointers we've talked about here this morning, the first cause of creation, the fine-tuning of the universe, the regularity of nature, they prove beyond, none of them prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists. But taken together, think about this, taken together, they make a potent and provocative case for the existence of God, the one put on display, put on display his eternal power and his divine nature in creation. But let me give you a second clue for the existence of God. It's the human conscience. In fact, turn with me over to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Look what he says here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Um, Paul here, what he's doing is he's arguing that although the Gentiles don't have a Mosaic law like the Jews, they do have a kind of law that God has written on their hearts. I mean, all people have an internal Law, a moral sense of conscience that points them towards God. How many people here have ever had an argument? I don't see a lot of hands being raised here. Okay, okay. Now, I, I know this might come as a surprise to you, but um, Becky and I sometimes have arguments in our household, usually about labor issues. Um, the usual situation is that Becky feels I do too much around the house. <laughs> and she's, you know, concerned about my health and rest. And so she'll jump up and, and, and jump in. And, well, that leads to the battling. C.S. Lewis wrote wonderfully about arguing in his book, Mere Christianity. When people are arguing, he said, you almost never hear them say, do what I want because I'm stronger and I can make you do it. No, when we argue, what we actually usually say are things like, but it's not fair, but it's not right, but it's not just. In other words, when we argue, we betray the truth that we believe there is a moral standard. And exists quite independently of our own preferences. Every person has a sense of oughtness, don't they? A sense of rightness, a sense of what is just, and 
and, and what is not. It's woven into the fabric of every person. Now, these days we hear people uh, say, no one should impose their moral views on others because everyone has a right to find truth inside him or herself. It's called relativism. The value that says, hey, it's up to you. It's a personal preference. But listen, I can guarantee you, if you attack one of their values, if you say, you know what, I think being prejudiced is okay. Or I think racism, that's a good idea. Or I think exploiting children is fine. You'll see that they don't think uh, those are just personal preferences. They believe those things are morally wrong, independent of how anybody might happen to feel about them. I mean, everybody knows there are transcendent moral realities. So the question is, where does that come from? It doesn't come from our government. <laughs> it doesn't come from whatever group happens to be in the majority and how they feel about it. No, there's a greater law of the universe inside of us. Our God-given conscience that is intended to point us back to God. The fact that our knowing right and wrong is baked into our universe, I got to tell you, that's a very powerful reason for believing in God. But it's not the best reason. Let me give you the best reason to believe in God's existence. Clue number three. The fact that Jesus shines through into our world. Now I know, <laughs> I gotta admit, it's not really a clue. Because it's a person. And I don't have a better way of putting it than this. Jesus comes shining through in strange places and in unexpected ways. John Orberg tells a story about an elderly woman who was terribly sick and had spent 25 years alone in a nursing home. 25 years. She should be bitter and she should be miserable. Instead, she glows with a joy of another kind. And when asked what she thinks about all day long, she replies, I think about my Jesus. He's been awfully good to me, you know? A very bright, wealthy, attractive man loses everything and winds up being incarcerated in San Quentin. And there in a prison cell through a bunch of prisoners with life sentences, Jesus comes shining through. And this man finds life that he never knew when he was in that penthouse. A lawyer whose secret alcoholism finally becomes unmanageable and robs him of his career and his possessions finds that Jesus in a dingy basement of a rehab center in a circle of drunks that Jesus comes shining through. It happened one day in a, to a murderous self-righteous Pharisee named Saul to a scandalized isolated tax collector named Zacchaeus to a humiliated lawyer named Charles Coulson to a humble little activist named Mother Teresa. To a paralyzed, disabled woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. In places of 
enormous human despair, gloom, and loneliness through the unmatched beauty of Jesus' life, through the unrivaled brilliance of his teaching, the man on the cross, he calls out for us to join him once more. The man of sorrows, he meets people in their tears in a way that no one else can. In the strangest places, the most unexpected ways, the best reason to believe God has a face and a name is the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus comes shining through. I mean, how do you explain the impact of Jesus' life on this world? Who else in history holds a place like him? What is it about that man's life? No group, church, denomination, or tradition can contain him. In fact, Dallas Willard once said, he is in his people, but not boxed in by his people. I got to tell you, that's good news. Because sometimes he comes through Christianity, and sometimes he comes in spite of Christianity. (laughs) So what will we do? What's your response to all of these clues? Well, one response is you could simply suppress it. You can ignore it. You can try to push it away and uh, uh, not honestly deal with it, refuse to honestly deal with it. But as Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, when we receive the knowledge of God and we turn our back on him, God gives us over to godless living. So there's a second response. Second response is to search it out, to think it through. Ask questions about God's existence. Look at the clues. Do what Mark Clark did. Mark Clark, he writes this, I was raised in a staunchly atheistic household. I heard about Christianity for the first time at a summer camp when I was nine years old. I was fascinated by the concept of God. Not enough to get me to attend church or read a Bible, but enough that I found myself going back to camp every year and talking about God. Then I came home to a very different life, stealing from cars, stores, the purses of my friends, mothers, to get money for drugs, partying, everything else you do when you don't have God in your life. Mark began using drugs at eight years old and they became a regular part of his life by high school. His parents divorced when he was eight and he developed Tourette syndrome, which later grew into obsessive compulsive disorder. Mark continues. My father was a classic deadbeat dad. He died of lung cancer when I was 15. I never got to say goodbye to him. Sitting in that very lonely funeral home, pondering Where exactly my father was, I asked myself, what do I believe? What do I believe about God, about myself, heaven and hell? What do I believe about eternity and morality um, and my father? Where is he? When Mark was 17, he met Chris, a former drug dealer at a school who had become a follower of Jesus. Mark was intrigued by his life and his passion for God. Chris challenged him to examine his doubts and to read the Bible and pray and think about what he believed about life and about God. 
Mark writes again, I began to wrestle with the existence of God with questions of suffering and evil and reliability of the Bible. I wrestled with the doctrine of hell and how God could allow my father to go to a place of everlasting torment. But the more I explored, the more I saw the emotional power and the, physic, uh, the, the philosophical soundness of Christianity. The year I met Chris, I gave my life to Christ and I began a journey of total transformation. The most powerful catalyst was the Bible itself. I spent two years reading the Bible. I felt like I'd been set free from all the shame and guilt and powerlessness I had known growing up and I was confident others would want that freedom too. People often ask me where my passion for defending Christianity comes from. As a longtime doubter myself, I delight in showing other doubters that Christianity is real. Historically verifiable, philosophically compelling, consistent with science, and full of satisfying answers to our deepest questions about life's purpose. How do we know that God exists? Listen, if you're looking for an airtight proof for the existence of God, you're not going to find it. But if you're looking for what makes the most sense after considering all of these clues all together, then believing in God and trusting in him is is much better than the alternative. Because both our creation... And our human conscience, they point to the existence of, existence of God. But I got to tell you, the greatest clue of all, the greatest clue of all is Jesus Christ himself. The man God. The one who went to the cross for each one of us. Let's pray. Father God, this morning indeed, We pray to you because we know that you are alive, that you are present, that you're in fact right here, right now. Your word tells us that. That God, not only do you exist, but you you move and you change hearts and change lives. God, you show up in so many different ways. Your fingerprints are all over our world. Lord, I pray for those here this morning and maybe are struggling with the existence of you, that God, you might speak to them, that they might indeed search the truth. God, that you might show yourself to them. You might show yourself continually to all of us. God, might we walk in faith Because we know, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you're good. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.